at the Passover feast, the number of his followers, followers began to grow. And many gave their allegiance to him because of all the miraculous signs they had seen him doing. But Jesus did not yet entrust himself to them because he knew how fickle humans' hearts could be. <laughs> he needed no one to tell him about human nature, for he fully understood what man was capable of doing. Now there was a prominent religious leader among the Jews named Nicodemus who was part of the sect called the Pharisees. One night he discreetly came to Jesus and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one performs the, mir the miracle signs that you do unless God's power is with him. Jesus answered, Nicodemus, listen to this eternal truth. Before a person can ever perceive God's kingdom, they must first experience a rebirth. Nicodemus said, Rebirth? How can a gray-headed man be reborn? It's impossible for anyone to go back into the womb of a second time and be reborn. Jesus answered, I speak in eternal truth. Unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you will never enter God's kingdom. For the natural realm only gives birth to things that are natural, but the spiritual realm gives birth to supernatural life. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be amazed by my statement. You all must be born from above, for the spirit wind blows as it chooses. You can hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is the same with those who are spirit-born. Nicodemus replied, I don't understand. What do you mean? How does this happen? Jesus answered, Nicodemus, aren't you the respected teacher in Israel, and yet you don't understand this revelation? I speak eternal truths about things I know, things I've seen and experienced, and still, you don't accept what I reveal? If you're unable to believe what I've told you about the natural realm, what will you do when I begin to unveil the heavenly realm? No one has risen into the heavenly realm except the Son of Man, who also exists in heaven. Um, and just as Moses in the desert lifted up the brass replica of a venomous snake on a pole for all the people to see and be healed, so the Son of Man is ready to be lifted up, so that those who truly believe in him will not perish but be given eternal life. For here is the way God loved the world. He gave his only unique son as a gift. So now everyone who believes in him will not perish but experience everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to judge and condemn the world, but to be its savior and rescue it. <clears throat> now that there is no longer any condemnation for those who believe in him, but the unbeliever already lives under condemnation because they do not believe in the name of the only son of God. And here is the basis for their judgment. The light of God has now come into the world, but the people love darkness more than the light because they wanted darkness to conceal their evil. So the wicked hate the light and try to hide from it, but the light fully exposes their lives. But those who love the truth will come into the light, for the light will reveal that it was God who produced their fruitful works. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Emily.
For God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16, every football game held up in a sign. Um, and it's a nice summary. Um, it's a nice way of sort of projecting the gospel out there. The thing, the thing I like about that as I thought about that this week, I mean, instinctively, if you know me, I just hate that. Because um, <coughs> it just seems to be like, I don't, I don't want to get into it. Um, uh, but, but as I was thinking about what am I missing, um, the thing I like about that is, is that it's, it's a lot of news in, in that passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Like, I, li- I like things that begin with news for us because they announce something of the realm of what God is doing. They bring something to the activity of which God is doing. Now, that was for many people, I don't know if this is probably true still, is that your first Bible memory verse as well. Probably so when you're at a football game, you can tell the person who asks, what does that mean anyways? Um, uh, it's all a pyramid scheme that starts somewhere else and then goes down. Um, but it's, it's a common sort of expression of Christianity. But today, um, how do we expand that meaning? I mean, so often we hear that phrase, we see that phrase, and there's goodness and truth that I think is right for the Christian to memorize and hold on to in that phrase. But sometimes, or often, it's perhaps good for us to uh, take some time to then find out what's it surrounded by. What's going on in this nighttime conversation between Nicodemus, this, this leader of sort of um, the established religion of Judaism at the time who comes to question him, not in the day, but at night, to find out what's going on. And then what's going on in there? Um, Q&A back and forth. Nicodemus, I forgot about this, asks three questions as this sort of goes on. Oftentimes, I think Nicodemus comes, says one thing, and is proven to be quite a fool, and then moves on. One of the things that makes me, uh, makes me appreciate Nicodemus more is, it finally struck me, I was watching a TV show called The West Wing, which Ray and Kim have watched, so you can ask them about it. But early on, there's this character, uh, Donna, is it Donna Moss? Is that her name? Uh, Donna Moss. And Donna Moss's job in The West Wing is to ask a question so the audience knows what's going on, which I had never thought of until that moment. I mean, if you're writing something and and if you're like, um, you'll see this in a bunch of movies. Once you notice it, you start to notice it everywhere, particularly like in um, uh, situation rooms where like they're about to invade something in high action movies. They're going to be like, we're going to do a red team. And somebody's job in the room is to say, what's a red team? So that the audience can all be like, yeah, we knew that. so, so Donna, early on, they're like, oh, it's going to be a filibuster. And because we're Americans, we don't understand our government process well. Donna says, what's a filibuster? Which leads to this instance of mansplaining. So this is all just a, um, where, where the character, always a man for some reason, has to explain to Donna what it is she just asked. Um, so that's the end of the sermon for today. Um, I had a lot of fun coming up with that one. Um, but Nicodemus... While my early understanding is like Nicodemus is this guy who doesn't get it. Nicodemus is actually someone who comes and asks the question in John's gospel so that we can hear the answer. 
We, like Nicodemus, say, these signs are something that you can do because you know God, which Jesus replies, but only those who know God in this way can see the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. How? These, these are our questions. Nicodemus is there so that we can hear the answers to Jesus' questions. And Nicodemus is a character who shows up again in John's gospel as, as we go through it. Um, He'll show up uh, at one of the trial sort of meetings early on, and then he'll show up at the burial. Nicodemus reflects someone who sort of moves through the Jesus pattern in some ways. John's gospel has this in which people are, are sort of probing, asking, looking, and sort of coming closer to him or further away from him based off of how they receive him, how they hear him, how they trust into him. Nicodemus, I think, is a good sign for many of us because he shows the um, slow roll of that. It's not one day uh, like the disciples in the previous passage we heard, come and see, and they just go. But he asks questions, and he wants to hear more and see more to have his whole world turned upside down, which is essentially what Jesus is going to ask him to do. So this is our, our third Sunday in the Gospel of John. Um, the first Sunday we learned about Jesus' sort of cosmic or, origins. Um, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. That Jesus is this one who comes from God into this world. And incidentally, in, even in the prologue, it's a world at conflict. There's darkness, and the darkness wants to overcome the light, but it does not overcome that, that, that in that prologue is sort of a miniature of the whole story. Then we heard from John, this Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That Jesus is going to be one who in some sense removes something. The stain of the world is going to take this away. And, and Lamb of God sort of names the sacrificial pattern that he's going to follow. This leads to two of John's disciples then um, going and following Jesus and, and then they bring somebody else along, and he's amazed that Jesus knows he's under a tree, and Jesus responds to him, and this is important for today's passage, is you're amazed by that, but you'll be more amazed when you see uh, angels, and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, that he names himself sort of as this ladder between heaven and earth, this thing in which these unities are bound. After that is the wedding at Cana. Um, where Jesus makes, as the party is, is getting to the end and they're out of wine, I think Jesus makes, if I remember correctly, like 750 bottles of more wine and good wine at that. Um, it goes over the top at this one. But what's interesting about that scene, and the last time we went through John, so this is, this is the calendar, um, the last time we went to John in 2019, what I did was I focused on the seven signs during the season of Epiphany, the seven signs that make up the first part of John's gospel that sort of reveal who he is. So the wedding at Cana is the beginning of those signs. The raising of Lazarus is the last of those seven signs. Um, that was in 2019. This, this time we're going to go more with conversations with Jesus through the gospel. But what's amazing about that instance is it's a wedding, which is this new life, this new beginning, this, this thing that in the Israelite scriptures is, is meant to be like a banquet. And it's this banquet because of human means is running out of what it has, but Jesus and God come and renew it as a sign of new creation. So Jesus renews a wedding, a banquet. New creation breaks into this world. The next scene 
um, he goes and cleans out the temple, which for many of us familiar with the other three Gospels seems out of order. Um, or he cleanses the temple twice. Um, I have no opinion on which one's the right answer. But um, he shows himself as, as Lord in one ways and then shows himself as Lord over the temple at the beginning of his ministry. That he's the guardian of this sacred place as well. Even as he, in, in the words of John's Gospel, is becoming that new sacred site the place at which angels will descend and go up and go down. Um, and so this is sort of the movement that we've had going through John's gospel with these breaks in the new ages. But so far, we haven't really heard much from Jesus. He's acting a lot, but he's not, he's doing a lot, but he's not saying a lot. And here, it's interesting to have this time to hear what he's going to say, this, this sort of announcement of his ministry and more full picture with Nicodemus, uh, this, this way in which he's going to bring it about in a, in a different way. Um, and so that's what we walk into today, particularly this conversation about two worlds that sort of collide. Now, the Nicodemus conversation is divided in a couple ways. Um, I'm going to follow this sort of way. The first one is sort of an observation about humanity. The second one is the Spirit's baptism, the solution to the problem. The third is the Son, that conversation. And the last one is the Father. Um, and so we'll walk through those. Um, but there's um, dualities in each of the answers. Uh, the first one, the Spirit's baptism, um, born again, born from above, burned from earth, flesh and spirit make up a lot of the duality. And the second one, he says, how will you understand heaven, earth, heavenly things if you can't understand earthly things? This sort of duality. And then in the last one, there's light and darkness again. But there's this light, but people love darkness instead of the light. Each one of these conversations is made up with sort of John's catches words that will, that will move throughout the gospel, most notably in that passage from John 3.16. This idea of eternal life, and then life on this plane. And so what Jesus is going to do in this conversation, or what he walks through with Nicodemus in this conversation, is there's this one way, a plain way, an a, um, observational way of looking at reality. And Jesus says, but there's another way, one that comes from outside of the picture that we have, and it's this way that, that then enlivens life in a different way, that brings about a different sort of life. We'll talk about it as we get to it, but eternal life isn't just, we only tend to, at least this is the way I was brought up, think of that in terms of quantity. It's more life, longer life, heavenly life. But John's gospel, Jesus pretty much clearly thinks of it as a, as a term of, of uh, quality, Eternal life is of a different quality of life. And for, for John's gospel, this sort of thing breaks into your life now, which is interesting. It's, it's something that begins as you are receiving this birth anew. It's something that starts in the plainness of your life today. I think there's um, I, an interesting way to, to conceive of this, um, I'm sure somebody else came up with it long before me, but I can't think of where I ever heard it, is, is the uh, opening of Wizard of Oz. Um, if your grandmother put that on and you were like, not another black and white movie, Grandma. Um, but there's a moment in which color floods into that movie. 
And it seems to me that Jesus has this way of sort of talking about life as we see it now as sort of within the outlines of what's truly there. But the second kind of life, the life from above, the life of heavenly things, the life that is kind of eternal, has a new contrast in color and different way of distinction in it. Sometimes we think, oh, it's just removal to a whole nother spot, which is part of the later part of perhaps what we might see in the Christian life. But what John is talking about is it begins now. And so in the plot of The Wizard of Oz, they don't go to a whole nother, well, yes, they're in a different world because of the tornado, but they're still living out their, their life in their bodily form. They're still going through that ways. And so, too, it is with us is that what Jesus is inviting Nicodemus into is this way of having life contrasted in a whole new way. And as Nicodemus asked the questions for us, it's a question for us is, do we receive life contrasted anew from above, from heaven, eternally in a new and different kind of way? And so that's sort of the outline for today's sermon as we'll walk through each of these um, sort of ways of looking about the world. The first one, which is often not included in these, is this anthropological one, which ends the last section. There are lots of people believing in Jesus because of his signs, but Jesus is leery of this because he understands human hearts. He knows the depths of people. Now this, I think, is a beautiful observation for us to remember two things. One is in which we, um, God knows us better than we know ourselves, is nearer to us than we are to ourselves. And so often our self-deceptions or outside deceptions that we can play in our own minds, which is often broken from a word from the outside, although sometimes we reason our ways to like, oh, I'm just lying to myself. Um, God is aware of that in a way that's deeper than we are aware of that. And so often the ways in which we can project ourselves in the world, too, God is aware that perhaps there's falsity there. The second, though, is this role of signs, which makes up a big part of John's gospel, although not in the way that the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is what scholars call the synoptic, which just means similar gospels for whatever that's worth. Um, uh, the signs in John's Gospels have more of this new order, new creation thing coming into it. But it's always important for Christians to remember that the signs are just that, signs. So often people will say, the miracles at my church, and if you run into these people, um, they're beautiful and lovely people, but they talk about the miracles that are happening as if they are the thing themselves. The true content of what we are doing are in these things. But what Jesus know and would routinely point out, and Paul will make this point as well, is that those are signs of the full thing that's going to come. That somebody is healed today, might get sick and die later, is a sign that full healing will come into point at some day. And these things are hints of that new creation. But like in our time, same thing happens in Jesus' time. These signs are the things we want to believe in. These signs are the acts in which we want to stake our claim. We are here for the goods that Jesus will do, but not so much for the whole new kingdom and world. Too much of an interruption of the present. I know I've said this before, 
Um, but Walter Brueggemann's phrase that always sticks with me is that particularly for Americans, our vision of hope is just more of the present. Or even my vision of hope is the people who don't have what I have to live my way might have that as well. And not a full interruption into business as usual. The biblical sign of hope isn't just more of what you have. Um, but it's a whole renewed and new world, new creation set about. Life's not so bad, I'll take the signs. Um, uh, and I think we fall into that trap as well. And Jesus knows the depths of each person's heart in this anthropology. This is what leads Nicodemus to come to him. And he comes at night. There's lots of ways to read into coming at night, that he's ashamed, that he's just exploring, that he doesn't want his other friends who will later kill Jesus to know seems fair to me, um, uh, a little bit of an understanding of his own spiritual state, that is, is he's at this dust point, and he needs to move to this light point in his own journey. There's all sorts of reasons um, uh, why he might come at night, but, but he comes at night with this question, Rabbi, which he recognizes Jesus as a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing, um, if God were not with them. Um, this brings us to Jesus' answer, which is the Spirit's baptism, which is this movement from the anthropology of the way in which we see things and to the way in which Jesus is going to expand the way we see things. Nobody could do these things without some sense of God upon them. And so what's, what's I think, really powerful in this is, is Nicodemus is, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with them. Jesus' answer, very truly, I tell you, no one, no one can perform these signs. Jesus wants to be clear, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus is looking at it in that, that sort of, no one can perform these signs as evidence that God is with you. Jesus' way of flipping this is to say, no one can see this kingdom of heaven unless they're born again. He raises the picture up. No one can do this. No one can see the kingdom of heaven. Incidentally, kingdom of heaven, again, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven is this theme that takes up much of the other Gospels. In John's Gospel, I believe it's only mentioned twice, which is an interesting thing, because John moves, um, it seems, the idea of eternal life into a place where the kingdom of heaven used to be. Um, that they're sort of, I think they're different, but they're very similar coherent signs. Um, that, that, that becomes the major theme of John's gospel, what Jesus is preaching, is this birth from above. And this brings us to the first um, dialogue. Uh, how can someone be truly born again when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time to their mother's womb. Um, Jesus at, or Nicodemus asks a good question for us here because then every pastor would get this question. Um, Jesus only answered the first question and now we have to explain the rest. No, Jesus explains the rest for us, which is good. Um, but we move from this anthropology thing into what is this that we need interruption for from the outside to this idea of what um, it means to be renewed into this new thing. Um, and so Nicodemus wants to know what does it mean to be born again. Jesus has this way, too, of the born again and born above, depending on your translation. There's a bit of a Greek um, 
double meaning here. It's, you can be born again, you can be born anew, you can be born from above. These are all sort of different meanings that come with this word. Um, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives uh, birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Jesus talks about here in this way in which we naturally see that flesh gives birth to flesh. And what he says is spirit gives birth to spirit. Now, just as a quick aside, flesh giving birth to flesh and spirit giving birth to flesh. Christianity has this history of being like opposed to perhaps the body at times. Um, and I think there's an interesting uh, kernel of truth within that movement. But flesh here doesn't mean the body. It means that the natural course of things gives birth to the natural course of things. That's okay. But the unnatural course of things, the amazing course of things, the spiritual course of things gives birth to that which is of the spiritual course of things. That a new birth comes from that place. I believe this is the quote on the back of the bulletin today from Rudolf Boltman. Thus, at the beginning of the conversation, it is stated uncompromisingly that man as he is is excluded from salvation, the sphere of God. For man as he is, there is no possibility of it. Yet at the same time, it is said in such a way that a hint is given that salvation may be a possibility for him, insomuch as it is possible for him to become another man, a new man. The saying of Jesus about rebirth also contains an injunction, not, however, of a moralistic sort, which is a key phrase. It's not a moralistic sort, but rather an injunction to put oneself into question. Am I born of flesh? Yes. Can I be born of spirit? Is that possible? To put oneself into question. Rebirth means something more than an improvement in man. It means that man receives a new origin, and this is manifestly something which cannot give himself. It means more than an improvement in who we are. If you, um, one of the books that I think seems to be selling well for the new year is James, James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. It's a good book on uh, using habits to sort of bring about your new life. Jesus is not talking about an improvement in your new year's resolutions. He's not talking about new habits to form yourself. He's talking about a new birth coming from a different plane. And, and I think Boltman catches this well. He catches that it's an impossibility, but raises the question of its possibility. But it's not something we can do or achieve. The next conversation comes about, about the son. The spirit was the main actor in that first part. Here, there's someone else. Nicodemus will ask, how can this be? Another good question for us to hear. Um, I think so often, like, we've read this so many times, if you've read it many times, you're like, why is Nicodemus not getting it? The only reason you get it is because he asked the question. <laughs> um, uh, like, if this, if this answer wasn't there and somebody said, yeah, but how could this be? We'd just be making stuff up. Um, well, you see. Anyways, um, <laughs> Jesus' answer, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. 
There's an important thing here that Jesus understands himself as one who's revealed by Israel's scriptures. You are Israel's teacher. If you've learned the path of Israel, this would make some sense to you. Now, I think Jesus is asking a lot here because some of this is in there. I mean, for instance, uh, Israel is a people, new people born of water, but by the act of God as they cross the Red Sea. Or in Ezekiel, when he says, I will put a new heart within you and a new spirit within you, but lacking water. There's, there's this ways in which, um, again, it's important that Jesus says this back because it identifies him with that tradition, it says he comes from those people. Um, but I think if we think, again, Nicodemus, how did you not get this? Those are streams within the Old Testament that come to this conclusion or, or peak in Jesus Christ. But if you're reading the whole thing, I think you're like Nicodemus. Oh, you might go after this conversation. I guess, yes, I should get that. But there's a lot there, man. Um, uh, there's a lot that I could have been reading. And so it's a challenging thing. But I think it's important, first, that we hear that he says that it could be seen by a teacher in Israel's life. Jesus doesn't fall from some Gnostic paradise with no history before him. He's identifying with the scriptures that came before him. It's always important for us to remember that. Very truly, I speak, uh, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, but you still do not accept our testimony. The weird movement to we here, one of the commentaries I said uh, had a summary that there are 11 things that people think the we means. So I will now walk through all 11 of them. No, um, it just, it seems to me that, there, that he's saying either that, that God is this we that speaks of these things, or that there's a community, both the disciples with him and the church, and the Johannan church, the church in which this gospel comes out of, is this we that is speaking of these things, but people are denying it. One, it gives us some solidarity with Christ. We speak of these things and people don't get it. At least when he spoke of him, that was true as well. Um, so we should ease up on ourselves. Um, the, the old way of evangelism at one point used to be called we're going out witnessing. Um, I like that phrase, one, because defying, the mission of defiance church is to be a witness to the reign, but also that like we are witnessing to what he has told us. We are witnessing to that. Um, I have spoken, here's that dichotomy again, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven just as the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the sake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. That Moses thing I get stuck on forever. Now this, um, at my last church, one of my least favorite jobs was coming up for something for the reader board when I was preaching. And the secretary would walk into my office and say, oh, Matt, what do you want up on the reader board this week? And I would say something asinine from whatever I could think of because I hated the idea of a reader board and I thought it was important that it just say what time we meet at so people could come to church. But anyways, I, one day I was preaching on, I think, this passage, and I said, make a snake and put it on a pole and anyone who has been at it can look and live. And like most Sundays or Thursdays, she left and I thought she's going to put up whatever she wants. And then she put up exactly what I said. Um, <laughs> she was a weird, uh, this is pretty major thoroughfare in town. Um, 
And she got the best of me because what did I say I thought was the most important thing for the reader board? What time we met at? It did not fit because the quote I had picked was so long. Um, so I lost on many fronts here. It was a sad week because also a snake handler, like one of the famous snake handlers died that week. And so people were like, what's going on at your church? Um, uh, it was, uh, I do not recommend this. Um, uh, and so then I said to them, how do you not get what I'm saying? You are one of the church's teachers. Um, uh, this is why I don't have coworkers now, because I was, I was hard enough to work with that I just decided, you know what, it'd be best if I just worked alone for a time. Um, so that's funny. Uh, but uh, there's a serious teaching here, which I think is so challenging, is why is it we're asked to look at the object of what wounds us to be healed? Your problem is with snakes, and the solution to your snake problem is to look at a snake. This I think about all the time. What could this mean? Now, I have a friend, uh, Jay Stringer, who I went to seminary with, who's trying to, he has a book called Unwanted, which is about um, thoughts that lead men to pornography and, and this type of thing. And one of the things that he believes is that, and he has this thing on your unwanted thoughts, is that they come from something in your past, which sounds like fun therapy. Because Jay is not going to say, okay, we'll just figure out a way to take away the bite that you're dealing with. Jay is going to tell you, you're going to have to look at the darkest spot that's driving you to this compulsion to get healed. Now, if you're familiar with uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, that's sort of the truth there, too, is that you are going to have to look at what has bitten you so that you can find life on the other side. I'll take the signs. Because this is the challenge that God is asking of us. And most notably, Jesus says that he will be lifted up in that way. He's referring to the cross. We, as most of our compulsions, I think evolutionary psychologists sometimes say this, are driven by a fear of death. We'll have to look at death. And not just one kind of death, but a painful death, crucifixion, and a painful death that is of one who is innocent. You don't just look at a criminal who's gone to the rightful spot he needs to go to get freed from this. But to be freed from this, to look at that pole, to find healing, is to look at the darkest thing that sometimes we can imagine, which is an innocent sufferer going to death before us. You want to get better from what's bitten you. And God, in his wisdom, asks us to look exactly at that. And there's this way in which, in which exposure we, through exposure we, um, we gain wisdom to see beyond it. Um, that's my friend Jay's point, is that it can control you as long as you keep it in darkness. It can keep ruling your life the more that you try to sweep it under the rug. But to bring it forth into daylight, 
begins to change the shape of that which is controlling you. For us to look at the cross and to see one who has gone before us to that place surely changes things. Augustine on this passage, what is the serpent lifted up? The Lord's death on the cross. For death came, uh, for his death came by a serpent is now figured by the image of a serpent. The serpent's bite was deadly. The Lord's death is life-giving. A serpent is gazed upon that the serpent may have no power. What is this? A death is gazed upon so that death may have no power. And I would add, not just death, but the works of death. Those things which control us is gazed upon so that we might be freed from that. So I've left myself almost no time for the most famous Bible passage of all. For God so loved the world that he... (laughs) He gave his only son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What to say about this today as we are winding down? First, as, as we were singing in worship and I was hearing the readings again, the Psalms reading about God's rescue for us, God using this material object in the book of Numbers, um, is that God is a God of rescue. And so the, this passage has within it shall not perish, shall not be destroyed, shall not, not have their life lost. God rescues from that. As the passage goes on, um, uh, the people who, who want the darkness um, and, the con- and it talks about how we're already condemned because we, where we are. This is the story of this God is that God wants to rescue people. We might prefer this passage with no threats attached to it, but then it wouldn't be the story of this God. Because the story of this God is saying that you shall not perish, but that you have eternal life, that you'll have this full life, that you'll have this kind of life that transforms things. As, as, as many of the commentators, and I was thinking, it's like, it would be nice if this was all just positive news, um, It's the nature of our God to say that I'm going to rescue you from those things. From the snake's bite, you will have to look at this. And incidentally, that story is told in a wilderness people moving from slavery to Pharaoh to to new promised land. And that's sort of the nature of what God does. But I think also contained within this passage is this notion that we believe into, that we trust into, that we live into. What is our contribution to the work that God is doing to us? Believe, trust in, in other ways. Um, Frederick Deal Bruner, one of the commentators, talks about how we're trusting into Jesus. And we are not having faith in our faith. That, I think, is one of the things that the contemporary church can start to do is to say, it's like, it's my faith in my faith that's saving me. God is doing this marvelous work through the spirits that we heard of, through what the Son is doing as the only one who's been to heaven and come down, and through the Father that sends his Son into the world, not to condemn it, but to save it. That these sort of works are done um, without our contribution to it other than leaning into this new reality, moving into this new space so that we can make no credit ourselves. This is Pope Benedict who passed away this week. I did think this was, I'll go back to the next slide and then we'll end. Faith is not primarily a colossal edifice of numerous supernatural facts, but an ascent to God who gives us hope and confidence. As at its core, faith is not a system of knowledge, but of trust. This is 
big statement from the Pope because they're built upon an edifice of knowledge. (laughs) But what he wants to say is at its core, faith is not a system of knowledge, but of trust. We are being asked to trust into something else that is not of our own. So the passage continues. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Um, But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. I think that's covered some with what we talked about with the serpent. Um, uh, it's, I, you read that passage and it says, whoever, the numbers passage that Emily read, whoever looked at it was healed. It makes me believe some people didn't look at it. Um, and then I think, well, that's crazy. Why wouldn't you just do the thing to get healed? And then I think about my own life and I go, oh, no, that makes complete sense. Um, you're going to have to look at the thing that caused the problem to get better. People love their darkness instead of to look at that because with that comes pain and exposure. It's like um, uh, you would think with modern ways, it would be like Moses, would be like trigger warning. The way you get better is by looking at the thing that caused the problem. Step forward at your own risk. Um, like it's, it's this way in which you're going to have to re-enter that trauma to get better. Whoever looked at it was healed. Well, it makes complete sense to me now. Um, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to light for the fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what, uh, plainly, be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Um, we step into the light. We believe into that truth that God has sent his son into the world to save us. Um, and that light reveals to a, from us, reveals that what has been done is being done by God. It is not our own, but is a work of God. Let us pray. Have instructed us with wisdom from the Gospel of John. Nicodemus, as a teacher, comes forward and asks questions that our own hearts would ask if we knew to ask them. Surely you are of God. How do you do these things? No, you won't see this new kingdom, this new realm, this new space, unless you're born from above. How is that possible to be born from above? To be born again. The Spirit's birth comes and gives light and life. It colors our world and makes us alive. We receive this in the gift of baptism, being made new, not through our own act and faith, but what you have done for us. How can this be? You've revealed it in your teaching in the scriptures and in the past. And so too you speak of these things today. That as Moses raised up a snake in the desert, so too the Son of Man will be raised up for us to see, to be exposed to that which is haunting us so that we may move into the light. It is your mission that you love us and that you made us and that you call us into this believing and trusting, not because we're more beautiful or more smart or anything else, but because we exist on the plane of death and you are raising us into new life and light. We ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.